gonna head into our little summer series. We're gonna head into Esther in some way. Um, last week we looked at Esther one. Who remembers last week? I don't either, so that's okay. That's certainly fine. Uh, we looked at Esther one. We were introduced to this king because he King Xerxes, um, and uh, he was basically at this moment in the story like a toddler crying, chucking toys out the pram, or chucking queens out of the kingdom. Um, he was having a real strop. And we read at the very beginning of this, uh, uh, we read at the very beginning of this chapter, that in a sense the king has slightly sobered up. Real moments of regret when the alcohol levels drop and a sobering comes in. And he has this real sobering up moment where he's basically regretting what has happened. And you've got the young men. By the way, if a king has to sort after young men, you know he's not a good king. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know he's not a good king. Like, the king ruler is going after 13, 14 year olds and saying, hey, have you got any advice on how I can run this kingdom? Like, it's just, it's just a mess. It's a, it's a poor way of running about it. Um, because we learn sometimes our young boys, as I was myself, are melons. They're not wise. They're not, not really the wiser people. And, and so this king is going to the young men and asks them, what's your advice? And the young man goes, and we kind of read this in the back of Esther 1, and, and they say, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all provinces of this kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem, in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hagar, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let the cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleased the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So in this really weird moment, where the king is basically like, you know what? I don't know what to do. Young men, what do you think? Beauty contest? Like, that could work. Like, let's, let's try and make that happen. Or um, it has kind of like this um, talent competition. It would have been something along those lines. Um, it would have been something in a, in a way of that competition. Um, they would have to, instead of an audience of men, it would be an audience of one. It would be the king. And the king would basically determine good or bad happy or not. That's what the king would do. And each woman would have to walk in, each virgin would have to walk in, and they would have to please the king, entertain them, both physically, emotionally, have some chemistry, and sexually, like in different ways, they would have to please the king. Sorry, it's more cough there. They would have to find different ways to try and basically say, I want to be the queen of your harem. I want to be the queen. I want to be in charge of it. It was all focused on what the king was contented by. So we have in this moment, we have then our introduction to the name of the book, the key character. We have her name first in Hebrew, Hadassah, but actually for the rest of the book, we are known her as Esther, by her Persian name. And we are told that Esther was beautiful, but we are actually first introduced to her uncle, Mordecai. Now Mordecai's great-grandfather would be part of um, those who were exiled out under the fall of Nebuchadnezzar. So it's kind of how our link between Daniel and Esther is. So we would have had basically three generations, Esther being raised by her actually cousin, not uncle, sorry, by her cousin. Uh, Esther would have been raised by Mordecai. We are later in this series, we're going to be looking directly at Mordecai because he is such an amazing character to be able to look at and understand. So we're not going to touch him now. But we have Esther. Now she won favour by Haggai, we know as 
the king's eunuch. She was given more and more of these beauty regimes. In fact, to talk about the beauty regimes, um, they would have been going for months of beauty treatment, like oils, moisturizer, everything. Kind of a spa day's dream, but a, a year long type thing. All basically aiming for this one night, not even a day, this one night with the king. Where if the king liked them, fine. The king not, then it is what it is. And we end up having this moment where it says at the end of Esther, ooh, at the end of Esther um, 2, the passage we're looking at from 16 to 18, it says, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, there you go, uh, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet. By the way, 10th month, we're talking about she was basically in those walls for literally around about 8 to 10 months. So she was there waiting, waiting, waiting. All the women, by the way, in the harem, because they captured all the birds from the city, they would have all been waiting. It wasn't a pleasant environment. It would have been Cassie. It would have been um, all about trying to outdo one another, all putting one another down. It would have been a horrible environment to be in, all waiting for their one moment. In the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to prince and gave gifts with all generosity. Kind of works out finding a wife. Helps the people, done it? Come on, Rishi Sunak. Might have worked out. Right. Um, we get this moment where Esther is brought in. You might remember before we're talking about the series of God's great provision in times where it might not seem like this. But let me give you another pointer to that. But Jesus is the better husband. This is my only point, I promise. It's my only point I want to get across today. We have a king that was abusive. We have a king who abused his power. We have a king, a selfish king, who's getting all his subjects, all his people, to try and do his bidding, do his work, trying to entertain himself for his own pleasure. Trying to appease him in certain ways. I think it's easy to look at religion and to think that that's what religion really is. Majority of people, opinions on religion is, we've got basically an angry God that is wanting you to do certain things and tick certain boxes to then be good. I think when people think about Christianity, they often think about this good way of living. And if you're not living good, then naughty, naughty, how dare you be in a certain way? Or you have to eat certain things if you're Jewish, or you have to pray how many times if you're Muslim. It's all about this idea of appeasing a God that wants you to follow them in a certain way. So it can be like, yay, well done you for appeasing me, all powerful, mighty God, to be able to say you're okay. I think that's what people think religion is doing certain things, eating a certain way. And if I enough I fail, I eat certain things, or I do certain things, I'm now dirty. And because I'm dirty, I have to find a way of then finding a way in front of my God to try and have that one moment where I can then please him in a certain way. <laughs> Though this might be a perspective on some religion, Christianity gives no room whatsoever for that to be the case. We have a God who is mighty. Uh, we talked about Xerxes last week. God is way more mightier than him. Mightier than Xerxes could ever dream. He is powerful. He spoke creation into existence. Do you, do you know how powerful you need to be to be like, yeah, Mount Everest, 
grow. Like, do you know, do you know how mighty you need to be to do that? To be like, you know what, I've got an idea, fish, let's put them in the sea. You've got to be pretty mighty to be able to do that. So God is mighty in all those things. God is just, he is mighty, he is powerful, we can't ever forget that. But in the same breath, we have that he's gracious and merciful and relational. So why? Why am I saying Christianity gives no space for this? Why am I saying that though we have this mighty God who could do everything and want anything, and yet he's also relational, we're standing here singing, um, you are worthy. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. How, how can I say that? Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus' love for his church. Or enter Jesus' love for his pride. Or another way of putting it is, the reason why we can say that is because of God's love for us. God's love for us. God's love for the church. We're not talking about just building operations at this moment. We're talking about the people, the very people that God loves. Um, in Ephesians 5, it says that husband loves your wives. It talks to husbands. It says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water for, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God's glorious plan is for the redemption and gathering and perfecting of his people that he loves, that he wants. Jesus came for the sake of the church. More than 30 times in the New Testament does it call the church his beloved. A word meaning more than just I love you, it means that I embody such love for you that you are beloved in all that you do. Christ loves the church. When we, when we turn up on a Sunday to worship one another, we don't just turn up singing like nice songs and the band is leading us and then we thank the band for doing such a good job, we're playing good notes. Like, we're not doing that. We're turning up to church to say, God, you are glorious, you are mighty, you are powerful, you are splendid, and you love me. And I'm standing in the presence of a mighty God, worshipping you, enabled with songs to glorify you. I'm not turning up to church just to sing happy, happy songs and, you know, nice little beats. I'm turning up to church to worship the living God. The God who spoke creation to being. He wants to meet with me and I'm worshipping him. And I'm not clapping the band for playing good notes. No, I'm saying God praise you that you've given people talents and they're serving you obediently. Just on that note, if we're clapping people for what they've done in Jesus, then the praise goes to people, not to Jesus. I want to thank people for serving obediently, but my clapping cheers goes to the living God. That, that's where it goes to. Why? Because God loves me. God loves the church. The primary, primary existence of the church is to glorify God. Because God wants to be married to the church. Or another way of putting it that John Piper describes this way. It's a funny way of describing it. Me as a leader of the church, I, I, I'm, I'm a shepherd in one sense, but I'm also a bridesmaid. 
I'm a bridesmaid, but I'm trying to prepare the church in the best way I can. So when the husband, Jesus, comes again, the bride, the church, is ready to be married and be thrown to his husband. That, that's part of my role. Part of my role is being a maid of honor, being a bridesmaid, to say, come on, church. Look to your husband. Look, look to who's coming. Look to your king who's coming to marry you for all eternity. And we as a church need to make sure our eyes are on the husband we're going to be betrothed to. The husband who we love. In Hosea 6, God, um, it's mentioned, God speaks to Hosea and says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's mentioning here, it's not about doing certain things. Esther had to take certain items to appease the king. I don't need to take anything apart from myself because Jesus gave me his all. That is the complete difference of Christianity to everything else. Jesus was the one who made the way into my life. Not I have to do things to appease him to make a way into his presence. I think it's remarkable. Jesus is the better husband. Jonathan Gilwood, an 18th century English Baptist pastor, kind of used uh, the words of Songs of Solomon 115 in a way to describe it. It says in Song of Solomon, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves. He describes it like this. These are the words of Christ, commending the beauty of the church, expressing his great affection for her, of her fairness and beauty. Now, Last point as I come to land, I just want to say, how can Jesus say these such words? Look at me. Yeah, like I, sometimes you feel like this, right? You look in the mirror. I'm, I'm not great. I'm a loud mouth Indian living in England. I have my problems. I'm sometimes proud. I'm sometimes, you know, difficult. I have problems, I have issues. Why, why can Jesus say, I look to you, my church, and you are beautiful? The reason why is because the restoration of the church doesn't happen by me getting better and better. It happened by Jesus saving me and I becoming more like him more and more and more. The beauty is not in what I do. The beauty is who I'm in. Let me say that again, just to really hit that home. The beauty is not in what I do. The beauty is who I'm in. Jesus is not an abusive partner that is looking for us to perform in certain ways. Jesus is not a cool master who's expecting us to tick certain boxes. Jesus is not an instructive coach that is telling us to do what is right and shout us what is not. Jesus is the perfect husband who loves us despite our brokenness, who loves us despite our failures, who wants us to become more like him every day. That pulls out grace and mercy and love when we fail, but it's spurring us up on to not fail and to press in more and more, to become more like him. Jesus loves his bride, who is to be restored and united with Christ. He loved it so much that he would lay his life down for the bride, and therefore we need to model to do the same. You want to stand with me? Let's stand. Just want to pray over us, really, as I was preparing this. Um,
just felt again, and it actually is funny, I think what Kate brought this morning and, and Adam kind of backed it was coming to God with specifics, being okay with the specifics. And I think in the same way, with a different tact, I just want to give us a chance to say, God, I might not look at myself in the way that you see me. And therefore, I'm not sure if I can come with specifics to you. It's kind of moments of carrying things in our back pocket and we're like, yeah, like, I can come to you with specifics, but I know about the other things that are going on, so I don't think you're going to answer them. I just want to say now, if you're in that place, that's a real lie, you know? The enemy wants to make you think that the guilt and shame that you think that you carry prevents you from coming to him. Now, this is what we're meant to be doing. We're meant to be bringing those things that we feel guilty and shameful about, putting them at the cross and saying, Jesus, I'm sorry, I repent and I give them to you. I just want to give us space to make sure that we are making sure we're playing our part as a church, as, a, as the bride of Christ, by saying, no, I don't want anything stopping me from coming to my husband, coming to my saviour, coming to my king. And if there is, let's deal with it now. Do you want to shut your eyes? Let me just pray. If that's you, if you feel like there's something stopping you from coming to the king, why don't you put your hands up now? This is personal. Everyone eyes are shut. If you feel like there's something stopping you from seeing who you are in Christ, or stopping you from coming to Jesus, why don't you put your hands out now? Similar to where Eleanor was in. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that you are the better husband. That you love us so abundantly to the point where you would lay down your life for us. And Jesus, I ask that if there's anything stopping us from coming to your presence, coming to a place, God, we give that to you right now in the name of Jesus. Whatever it might be, if you've got your hands out, name it now. Name it. Give it to him. Name it. And Father, those things that we have named, we lie them at the foot of your cross and say we will not let that stop us from coming to you and being your child. Thank you, Jesus, for how you have restored your pride and every day that we are becoming more like you and becoming more like the church you want us to be, unashamed, unbashful, ready to rule for the line of Judah and rule for our husband. We pray in your holy name. Amen.